Breaking news, like really breaking, like just now. There's a new Speaker of the House. I think his name is Mike Johnson. I'm not sure. I, we don't know jack about this dude. Uh, he sounds like an AI made up to get all these votes, but we're going to we're gonna learn. You're going to learn with us right now who the new Speaker of the House is. We're going to talk about that for a bit uh, and what it means. And then when we get done with that, we're going to talk about the fact that just when I finally got a hold of how many criminal and civil trials Trump is facing, I'm beginning to lose count of how many co-conspirators are flipping and pleading guilty. Politically, I would assume this has to matter, but we're going to talk about that. Finally, we'll update the situation in Gaza and where our feelings are on all of it now that we're over two weeks into the latest conflict. Ravi, we have a speaker. <laughs> yes. I mean, this came in just in time for this live episode we're doing here on Wednesday night. It's actually 11.30 p.m. where I am. What time is it over with you? I forget now. It's like uh, midday. I right? am. I'm at. It's 1 p.m. So I'm on U.S. Central Time, and you're in what? India? Are you still in India? Yeah. Yeah. IST. I two more days in India. I've been here for a okay. month, which we'll get to later on in the pod. Amazing. But yeah, Mike Johnson. Uh, Susan Collins was asked about him, and she said, "I don't know who he is. I'll have to Google." <laughs> this is the Speaker of the House. Uh, so. Uh, let me do my best here. He's an attorney and former radio host, close ally of Trump. Uh, he was a part of Trump's former, uh, his legal team, his legal defense team in two of his impeachment trials. Uh, he um, contested the results of the 2020 election. He urged Trump that year to, quote, stay strong and keep fighting as he tried to overturn the results of the election. He objected to certifying Joe Biden's electoral win. Um, he has not been in the House for too long. He's the least... Uh, experienced speaker elected in 140 years. He's in just his fourth term. Uh, he was a lead organizer of an amicus brief uh, signed by 125 other House Republicans backing the Texas-led lawsuit asking the Supreme Court to intervene in the count of the votes. And he is a bit of a lunatic on abortion positions. Let's go to this clip. Roe v. Wade gave constitutional cover to the elective killing of unborn children in America, period. You think about the implications of that on the economy. We're all struggling here to, to cover the bases of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all the rest. If we had all those able-bodied workers in the economy, we wouldn't be going upside down and toppling over like this. Listen, the gentleman I yield. will not yield. I will not. Roe was a terrible corruption of America's constitutional jurisprudence. I yield to you, Jason. What do yeah, you make of that uh, the economic argument for abortion? I mean, I'm thinking maybe the reason the dude didn't yield is because somebody was going to be like, aren't you against immigration? <laughs> like, like, like <laughs> yeah, your so argument is we thought. don't have enough yeah. human beings in the country because of abortion, but you're like probably against immigration. So, I mean, I wouldn't yield either if somebody was going to point out how stupid something I just said was. Uh, yeah. So from what I can tell. This dude has Forrest Gumped his way into the speakership, right? I mean, like, he's just right place, sure. right time. Uh, I'm not saying he's, like, dumb. I'm just, I mean, he, he's probably not. But but some of the craziest, most effective leaders we've ever had in this planet have, you know, Putin kind of did this, you know? Like, sometimes in, the, in chaos, when people are, you know, shooting each other, uh... You know, sometimes an unlikely figure emerges who actually winds up being pretty powerful. I wouldn't bet on that in this circumstance, given what he's up against, but it's possible. Well, I'll tell you this, is that he's about to be super famous, and not just because he's Speaker of the House, but because he's got a lot of bat crazy ideas, and he's a 
he's a Democratic campaign ad. Like if AI were like, we're going to make a bad guy uh, for the Democrats to work against. Uh, anyway, I, I just think, I mean, should we, should we just get a bus right now that's wrapped that says fire Mike Johnson? Like there's probably already a bus somewhere that says that it's a super common name. Like, can't we just, can't we just get that bus and start driving around the country? Well, we won 2022 because of two arguments. One was uh, abortion and the other was uh, election integrity, democracy issues, right? Uh, or like election integrity, I guess is what they say. We say pro-democracy uh, and, you know, accepting the peaceful transfer of power. And that's, those are the two issues we largely won on uh, in the past election, maybe followed by gun violence. Third, they elect a speaker who is horrible on all those issues, like very, very bad. Right. On those issues. Now they were asked the GOP caucus. They had this huge, like, get together with all these people. For those of you on audio, you can't see it, but this is like I don't know, like forty GOP members all huddled around uh, Mike Johnson um, as it as his momentum was building for his candidacy. And they did a press conference and uh, they asked about the election denialism. Let's go to this clip. Oh, yeah, shut up. Yeah, it's just a peaceful transfer of power in the elections. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, okay. They're smiling. Like, they clearly have it's not old news. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they think By the way, it's I, old I, news. For folks, man. this is wine, just in case people are wondering. It's 1130 where I am, <laughs> so it covers Um, Okay, so here's what I think is going to happen next for Speaker Mike Johnson. Um, my favorite part of his biography uh, which I became familiar with in the last few minutes, um, is that he is a former <laughs> radio host. Uh, he is a former radio host and a conservative talk radio host. Um, I'm guessing that when he ran for Congress uh, in what is, I'm sure, a very conservative district in, in Louisiana, I think he's from Louisiana, um, I bet there was not a lot of uh, interest in combing over the archives of his radio show. because. Probably he was likely to win. And also, if you found some stuff that we might find objectionable, the people in his district would, for the most part, not find it uh, objectionable. I bet that there are a lot of people combing through those archives at the moment. And given that so far we've just seen the one clip on abortion, which is recent, which had not aged well the moment he said it, there's going to be some really not aging well comments. Uh, because I don't know if you know this, Robbie. Conservative talk radio is not exactly built on restraint. It is not built on nuance. It is built on keeping people to, you know, keeping people listening. And that means being provocative and hateful and mean. Uh, and I just think, I think this is a huge problem for them. Yeah. And, you know, Pence actually had a radio station, somehow survived that. He had a radio mm -hmm. show for a while. Uh, now, I think it's instructive to compare Johnson to Tom Emmer, uh, who appeared to be gaining momentum over the past few days. And I don't know, I, I don't claim to know a lot about Emmer. I just know what the Republicans who oppose him said, uh, Trump being the most notable. He lashed out at Emmer on social media two hours into, um, you know, Emmer's sort of momentum. Uh, and he called Emmer a Republican in name only, a rhino. Um, he uh, basically went after him for the sin 
of codifying or certifying the 2020 election. He also voted in support of codifying same-sex marriage protections, which uh, earned him opponents from other GOP members. Uh, and that's what it takes to to kill a speaker nominee in the modern Republican Party. Yeah, and let's. The reason I think politically this is a big deal for them is because it's two reasons. One, this is the leader of their party right now. Like, if if it's not Trump, uh, who you know is going to be their nominee, then it's this person, and so that means like. There's going to be plenty of them running for re-election. Like, take, put the presidential aside for a minute. Think about all the other races on the ballot, particularly races for the House, races for the Senate, where th- there's going to be a lot of Republican candidates who are going to be in a position where they're having to say, hey, you know, I, I disagree with Trump on this. They're going to have to distance themselves from Trump a lot. But when they do that, they're still going to be stuck with, this is the elected leader of their party right now until there's a nominee. And you could argue even after there's a nominee for president. And I promise you, this this is not Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy was objectionable because he was a doofus, all right? Because he was just like, he, he was just clearly a coward who just went along with whatever he needed to do to try and stay in pursuit of the speakership or in the speakership for as long as possible, right? He was basically an empty suit. And while He's that a concierge. Is, He's like he, whoever whoever is in front of him he gives them what they want. <laughs> exactly. Know? And it's and it's it's sad and it's pathetic, but it is not the kind of thing that motivates people to go out and vote against him. It's not the kind of thing that necessarily makes people go like I cannot vote for anybody who would have voted for this guy for speaker. He's not that person, right? Like Mitch McConnell it was a little bit like that, but even Mitch McConnell didn't fully fit that. I'm talking about like what Nancy Pelosi was to the other side. While you and I were fans of Nancy Pelosi, to them she represented, you know, San Francisco. She you know, she she was Obamacare. She was all those things. It was not difficult for them to create uh, an avatar out of her that they could, I made the joke earlier, you know, plaster, fire Nancy Pelosi on a bus driving around the country and then take the house. This dude, who we are just learning about, who had a conservative talk radio show, who led the defense of Trump during impeachment, who was one of the leaders, despite them wanting to shout down that reporter, of the movement to try and overthrow the government, and who says, the weirdest and craziest and frankly creepiest stuff about abortion, he is like that. And that's who they've now chosen to be their standard barrier bearer. And here's what's worse. The stuff he said that is really awful is stuff that almost none of them can break from because it's now mostly yeah. conservative ideology. It's not like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who says stuff about Jewish space lasers, and they can distance themselves from that without it costing them in a primary, the stuff he's saying, they can't distance themselves from. Yeah, I think it's important now to look back on this past few weeks and say, well, what did all of this mean, right? Like, what did what was this this insurrection within the House GOP? What what did it, what was it all about? And I think it's clear that there are certain members of the GOP caucus who can't grasp being in the majority. They have to feel like they're in the minority. And so they have to create enemies within their own caucus so that they don't have to own the responsibility of governing. Like that seems sure. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is that they're they're kind of nihilistic. They're devoid of an ideology. It's not like this was um 
the Gingrich revolution, you know, no matter what we think about it in the nineties, there are actually ideas attached to it. Uh, there's, there's not many ideas attached to this, uh, revolution. Like, cause even like you take something like the election denialism, McCarthy kind of went along with that. You know, it's not like any Mm -hmm. of this stuff. McCarthy would have been whatever any of these people wanted him to be. Right. They just needed him to be an enemy. They couldn't take yes for an answer. And I think it'll be fascinating to see in the months ahead, especially between now and the election, how that sort of troublemaking caucus, like how they navigate this next period of time. Because like I can't imagine them doing this again, but I don't know. They're, they seem like they're a bit of political arsonists. Yeah. If I were going to be generous to them and try and come up with what is the uniting principle behind which this coup uh, to throw, overthrow McCarthy within their uh, conference was based on, I guess I would have to go with debt, with $33 trillion in debt, only because it's the thing they talked about the most and because it, it, was, fo- right. it, was, a, it was at least at least ostensibly a reaction to McCarthy uh, working with Democrats to keep the government open. I'm also doing this based on the limited times that I have tweeted about anything in the past few weeks, uh, when it's not just been anti-Semitism directed at me, uh, it's been, how can you you know ignore 33 trillion in debt? So they, they seem to have gotten at least the, the far right really animated about that idea. And I think that's a problem for them because A, I don't think that's going to motivate a lot of people in the election, not because people don't necessarily care about it, but because I think people reasonably don't believe that either party's going to do anything about that in the short term. Um, because mm-hmm. just looking at recent history, it's, it's Republicans, it's not like they've gotten into power and balanced budgets. I mean, that's not, you know, or, or retired debt. It's not something they've been doing. I think that most people, at least persuadable voters, look at that and they're like, yeah, politicians always talk about this when they're out of power. So I don't think that they buy that. So I don't think that's going to work with many voters. And the other reason is, even for the voters who do care about it, the persuadable ones, that is, I'm not in any way convinced that it's going to be a bigger deal to them than extremism, like with election interference and and rule of law and uh, abortion. Um, and, and again, I'm talking about persuadable voters, not Trump voters, but mm-hmm. the voters who will determine the election. Yeah, so well, we're going to take a, a break and hear from uh, our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to talk about an absolutely horrific legal week for Donald Trump, uh, and then we will talk about the uh, evolving conflict in the Middle East. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I know it's a difficult time right now with everything that's happening in the world, with the changing seasons, this is the sprint towards the holidays when I think work could be really intense. And I know a lot of people in my life who've benefited from therapy. And I know that a lot of you live in places where you either might not have that many options for therapy, or you might feel self-conscious walking into a waiting room, or you might just want the most possible options possible, um, and you want people who are vetted. Uh, and so if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll get matched with a licensed therapist, and you could switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Now make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com. 
betterhelp.com slash M54 today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. So I've always been a Pinot Noir person, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, it turns out I can add Merlot to my list of favorites. Don't tell the folks over at Sideways. First Leaf knew what wines to send me, and that felt familiar and delicious and will get me excited about trying new wines. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. And since I chose the day my shipment comes, I've never stressed about getting a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee and I've been busy I've been traveling I just don't have time to research what wine to purchase Uh, and it's kind of turned me off to the whole process and you know often like the wine world can be really fancy and judgmental but first leaf makes it super easy reliable and delicious Um, and I've received a bunch of different wine shipments from them and each one uh, has been better than the last one uh, from my Merlot to my Pinot Noir, First Leaf makes it easy while the personalized shipments perfectly capture my components of each variety. So give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to firstleaf.com majority to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's try First Leaf, T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash majority. Try firstleaf.com slash majority. All right, Jason. I honestly had to spend more time preparing for this episode than normal because I had to keep track of the amount of people who flipped this week on Donald Trump. It's There are the old people who flipped, like Michael Cohen, which I think we'll have some time to talk about. Um I guess our colleague, Michael Cohen, as I like to say now at the Midas <laughs> Network. Uh, but uh, I think the biggest is Mark Meadows. So ABC News reported, and we don't have all the details of this, that he's been granted some form of immunity. And it's worth mentioning that there are different forms of immunity that you can have, different levels, which we could talk about if people are interested. But um, it was uh, ABC News reported that Mark Meadows has uh, been granted some form of immunity and has met with Jack Smith's team uh, multiple times, at least three times this year, including one before a federal grand jury. Um, and it seems like, Jason, that he's had some stuff to say, uh, essentially contradicting his own claims about how the election was stolen. Uh, and essentially, um, you know, just saying like things that a reasonable person would say. And it's, it's, it really reminds us what the, the, the penalty of perjury can do to make people reasonable. Um, all of a sudden, like, um, they, uh, they disavow, like he wrote a whole book about how the election was stolen, um, and how the media was basically conspiring, um, to keep it, uh, hidden. Uh, and then, you know, penalty of perjury, he talks a much different game. What, what do you make of this? Like you, I think you were the one to raise this one back in the day to be like, Hey, it's weird that he wasn't charged in the, in the DC case. He has been charged in Georgia, but Mm -hmm. What do you think is going uh, on whenever here? The, what I think, what I keep seeing happening, um, now this is not true with like Jenna Ellis, but I think it's true with several of these. When I see something like Meadows, who's written a book saying one thing and then testifies to another thing, I, I don't even see it as like they're a hypocrite. I just see it as they're just an actor and he just broke character, yeah, right? It's like, sure. yeah. it's like, like, you know... It's like the fourth wall. He's like, all right, no, seriously, y'all. Okay, fine. I, now that I'm out of character. I mean, if you think about the stuff uh, that he said here, right? Like, 
I mean, let's just go over the notes we have here. Like, um, he he informed Smith's team that he repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the 2020 presidential election that the allegations of significant voting fraud coming to them were baseless, uh, which is obviously a huge break from what Trump was saying during that time. Um, According to sources, Meadows also told the federal investigators that Trump was being, quote, dishonest with the public when he first claimed to have won the election only hours after the polls closed. Uh, This is a quote uh, from a source, a a quote of Meadows. Obviously, we didn't win. Uh, Trump has... Uh, called Meadows, uh, he's called him his special friend, or a great chief of staff, as good as it gets. And Meadows, in his book, said that the election was, quote, stolen and rigged. Uh, and he said it happened with allies, you know, help from allies in the liberal media who ignored actual evidence of fraud right there in plain sight for anyone to access and analyze. So part of me is just like mad. I mean, just the standard, like, <laughs> yeah. outrage of just what a, I mean, it's not like he went out and was like, I love Pepsi when he actually drinks Coke. Like, he's not like a celebrity yeah. endorser who, you know, is backing one product but doesn't use that product as much. He's actively worked to undermine and, nay, overthrow democracy in the United States. And then when you put him under oath, he's like, yeah, you know, I was just joshing. Uh, don't put me in jail, please. And that's, that, that person was the chief of staff. To, at the White House, if if a movie in the 1990s or the 2000s were made where a, a White House chief of staff wrote a book where he said that the election was bogus and overthrown and it turned out he was lying and trying to overthrow the government, you'd have been like, this, you can't make this movie. That's way, that's way over the top. And we're, we're, we're talking about this. It's like the B or C story. Um, I don't even have a point here other than I I'm so tired of this. <laughs> like it's crazy. <laughs> well, there's a well, one thing we don't know is what kind of immunity he got. So there's like three types of immunity. There's a proffer agreement where basically what you testify to can't be used against you. There's formal immunity, which means they agree not to prosecute you. And then there's like a full cooperation agreement, which is you plead guilty and you enter an agreement to give full testimony. And then the prosecutors write a letter to the judge saying Hey, this person cooperated, right? We don't know what which of the three this is. My guess would be the first, like some kind of proffer, but I don't know. But I do think I, I do have a theory as to why this information came out, and it's because there's other people flipping this week, and I think the Meadows camp was like, "Let me bury this alongside mm. the other people flipping, so I get way less attention." That's my theory because Jenna Ellis uh, became the third Donald Trump allied lawyer to plead guilty in Fulton County. Um, we also heard from Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesibro. I'm being generous again. Um, and uh, we actually have a clip uh, of Ellis pleading guilty in court, just to get you a sense of the, the tenor of this. Uh, let's go to that clip. Has anyone forced, threatened, promised, or coerced you in any way to enter into this guilty plea? No, ma'am. Is it your decision to waive these rights and enter a guilty plea because you are in fact guilty? It is. How do you plead to aiding and abetting false statements in writings and under accusation 23SC190514? Guilty. Thank you, Your Honor, for the opportunity to address the court. As an attorney who is also a Christian, 
I take my responsibilities as a lawyer very seriously, and I endeavor to be a person of sound moral and ethical character in all of my dealings. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information, especially since my role involved speaking to the media and to legislators in various states. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. So how does this make you feel, Ravi? Well, I, I think like I'm trying to use the rational side of my brain because it, it's like as a human interest story, um, I have there's only so much sympathy you could throw around right now, given what's going on in the world. And I don't like to see anybody break down crying in court. But honestly, like I won't go there. But I'll say that this is not clear cut. There are some I, some people I respect, even though I disagree with often, people like the National Review's Andrew McCarthy, who's a former federal prosecutor, who argue that actually Powell's guilty plea, for example, was evidence that the case in Georgia, according to McCarthy, is faltering and the RICO indictment is a dud as he sees it. And his rationale is worth taking seriously. What he says is, quote, when prosecutors cut plea deals with cooperators early in proceedings, they generally want the pleading defendants to admit guilt to the major charges in the indictment. The indictment, but Powell pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges. Ellis and Chesabro both pleaded guilty to a single felony charge, but they received punishment similar to Powell's. Uh, McCarthy argues that Willis allowed Powell to plead guilty on the minor infraction because minor infractions is all she would get. That's like a counter argument. I'm, I'm putting this out there not because I know for sure, mm -hmm. um, but that we need to take seriously that possibility. And I think part of what I've seen from from some prosecutors is that. Uh, some of these defendants, and we covered some of this, were pushing for um, to be severed from the case, which some of them got, and to have their cases expedited and, you know, basically were uh, exercising their right to a speedy trial, which they're entitled to. And we should, we, we all believe everybody should be entitled to speedy, speedy trial. So taken together, there is enough uncertainty as to what all of this means, but it's, you could hold two ideas simultaneous one is actually this could be good the best possible outcome for these defendants and actually it is possible that the prosecutors didn't have them like dead to rights and at the same time them pleading guilty is bad for trump like those two things could could be simultaneous and i think that's where i am yeah i think i think it's very bad for trump right because you have to imagine that all of these folks are going to be called as witnesses, right? I mean, they've pled guilty to doing these things and their testimony is going to be pretty straightforward. It's, do, do you, looking back, like you, you did this because you were instructed to, right? I mean, that's what she says right there. She says, this is what I was told, right? I was told to yeah. go on TV. I was told to talk to legislators and say these things. It's also, there's a pattern here that's interesting. You know, I looked at the, at the replies to this video when it was posted and of course no one has any sympathy for this woman and 
but uh, unpopular opinion, but I do uh, because the pattern that I see in in this stuff is in the Trump world, the stuff that they want people to do, like actually to execute, like when they want people to go out and actually break the law, they are for the most part insulating the top most experienced people from that as best they can. Now that that insulation is being broken through. You're seeing Giuliani and Meadows and people like that get in trouble. But they were putting a lot of people, like they were having people like Jenna Ellis, who, you know, is a very young lawyer who I'm sure when the president of the United States is like, I want you on my legal team and I want you to be on television representing me. It doesn't excuse her poor moral judgment in this case, but I'm sure that's alluring, particularly for somebody who already believes in in, in Trump. Uh, and they're using these folks. And that, I, I just think that's clearly what happened with her. Like, I think back to some of the exchanges she had where she was clearly pretty high in her own supply, You know, where she was talking smack to our friend Molly Jean Fast. She was saying, look, look at the position I'm in versus you're still, you know, at the Daily be like not understanding that Molly Jean. Oh, I didn't know any of this. Yeah, I actually didn't know who she was before she pled guilty, but um, she I knew was, the other She two, was like the TV but... spokesperson for the legal team, right? It, oh, that's I how I knew her. And But she's uh, young and was thrust into this position that would usually take a long time to achieve in much the same way that Mike Pence became vice president. Nobody else would do the job because it was a job that was going to get you in trouble and was based on having to say things you didn't believe, but a young, but it looked like a shortcut to a lot of young people, I think. And I, and I think you're going to see people who are either way underqualified or were way inexperienced or both uh, pleading guilty. And I think that that's how they're chipping away at Trump is like, get these people, they'll plead guilty to whatever they're going to plead guilty to. It's also possible that they were showing some degree of mercy to somebody like her because they feel like she's not a mastermind of this thing. Um, and she's young and, and, and everything. So I think that could be part of it too. Yeah. I think a lot of people, and you know, this better than I do, they don't realize that, uh, legal disputes are not moral disputes and, and they're not like, they're not battles of interpretations of the law and just stacking up evidence. They're also logistical. How many uh, staff members do I have? How many hours do we have? How many judges are there in our jurisdiction? And I think people need to realize that when you're trying to, pro and we raised this issue early on with this one, with the RICO statute, in saying that uh, trying this many people, even if they're, if they're grouped together or not, is a lot to ask of a, a local prosecutor who has other crimes to prosecute. And mm -hmm. this, I think, is a reflection of that in some ways, is to say, like, they can't yeah. take all these things to trial. And- yeah. Only time will tell what this really means. I think for her and these others, I imagine you know you know this. They're probably going to be disbarred, right? You plead guilty to, I don't know about the misdemeanor I, charge, but I, the felony charges, right? I would certainly think so. I mean, you know how how big of a criminal you have to be for three of your lawyers to plead guilty <laughs> in a conspiracy with you. So yeah, I mean, when you, I, if they're not disbarred. Something is wrong. Um, right. And also, like, if they're not disbarred, who is hiring these people for the rest of their careers? You, you, choose a new career anyway. Even if you survive disbarment, yeah. don't practice law anymore. That's not for you, right? That, that's not for you. That was not the right career choice for you. Go back 
Take a skills-based aptitude test and try a new thing. It would be my advice. Well, maybe we should quickly talk about uh, Michael Cohen. Um, we'll get to this graphic up. Um, he, this was the one that I, I've dived into the least. Uh, so he gave testimony in this Trump civil fraud trial. Jason, did you catch any of this or any of the coverage of this? Because this is the one I know the least about. Uh, I only caught a little bit and, and uh, you know, uh, oh, my understanding is I'm reading the thing. Breaking news. Trump just took the stand. Just this now. is how crazy this yeah. week is. Now, admit it, I'm running around India chasing down sources and stuff. But so apparently Trump took the stand, Jason. I have no idea what okay. happened. In this how time. do we track this in real time? Um all right. Well, until we get that, we're obviously going to talk about that. We're going to we're going to talk about Trump. Well, okay, actually, but there the is stand. a Trump thing I want to mention here. He compared himself. Okay. He made an unlikely comparison. Let's just go to this clip. He when all these people flipped, Trump uh, did what he does best, which is play the victim. Let's go to this clip. Those people have no problem. If you want to challenge the result of an election, they hound you. Look what happened this weekend with two good people. They hound them and they scare them and they've, but we don't get scared. We don't get scared. I'll tell you what, I don't mind being Nelson Mandela because I'm doing it for a reason. I'm doing it for a reason. Yeah, he's Nelson Mandela. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, let's put him in prison for 50 years then. Like, sure, let's make him (laughs) Nelson Mandela. Let's see. Yeah. (laughs) You know. So Um, Trump is taking the stand right now. I'm just looking. I'm, uh, okay, it, it's it's in, of course in the in the uh, it's about his apparent violation of a gag order for his public attack on a New York court official. Um, that's what he is testifying about right now. Um, uh, wow, uh, and I guess it's wild. The so the judge said. I guess the judge questioning him. To whom are you referring? When you said the person sitting alongside, and Trump says, you and Cohen. So he's talking to the judge. The judge says, as the trier of fact, I find the witness is not credible. Is this real? I can never tell. Uh, yeah, I think this is real. So finding Trump $10,000, which is not going to matter. Which doesn't um, matter. Uh, before issuing the finding, the judge said, first of all, my principal law clerk is very close to me. You and I can see each other, and we are close, but not as close. And there's a barrier between us. So wouldn't that be at best somewhat ambiguous as to whom you're referring I mean, basically, the judge has had enough. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I read like, that that the judge, yeah, the judge said that he's like very close to to getting jail time for violating the gag order because I think he keeps fining him and warning him. Yeah, so that's um, that's that's the thorough reporting of this matter that uh, that you get from Majority Fifty Four. There's only so many legal cases we're going to give you here, but uh, you got to think about what this is like from Trump's perspective. He's so divorced from any sense of shame that I right. you got to think he actually enjoys this. Like like this is like a thrilling he he in a weird way I think this is like exactly the kind of like sort of pace of life that he I yeah. I agree, I think, but the wrinkle is that this is a guy who is scared to death uh of 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 jail um of prison i mean like he he's he's really afraid of it um and 
there are some practical considerations here for him about his campaign. If he actually does get to the point where he gets, let's say he gets put in jail for 30 days. I'm not trying to be petty. I'm about to talk about something that's going to sound petty, but that is quite real. And because the entire Trump political deal is this house of mirrors, right? Where, where Trump, I mean, he has a very thick foundation of makeup that's put on every single morning. He clearly, there's a lot of spray tan involved. There's a lot of hair dye. There's a pretty elaborate system that has been famously talked about for many years for orchestrating his hair to where it, it doesn't demonstrate that he is having totally normal, nothing to be ashamed of male pattern baldness for you know a man over 40, let alone a man in his late 70s. Um, but that's all part of the character that he plays. And yeah, let's say he gets put in jail for 30 days. Like he's going to come out of jail not looking like that. And I think yeah. there are a lot of people who once they see that, they're not going to unsee it. And I think it could shatter the entire mythology that a lot of people have around Donald Trump. Yeah. I think that's I, a real uh, thing. I can't even imagine, honestly. Like I can't even I think you're right. I think what he would look like, what he actually looks like, I think would be shocking to people. You know? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, okay, well, we're going to take a break on that note. Uh, and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the Middle East uh, and catch up on the, I think it's been two weeks since we've talked about this. So, a uh, lot to talk about there. So, we'll be right back. Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible, is so, so important. We all have a heartfelt reason to support our blood pressure. In fact, more than half the U.S. population would benefit from blood pressure support. Super Beats Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure, and they promote heart-healthy energy. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Super Beats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. And with over 30,000 five-star reviews and counting, Super Beats Heart Chews are having their moment. Super Beats Heart Chews are incredibly delicious and so much better than any alternative supplements out there. I take my Super Beats Heart Chews each morning and it really kickstarts my morning routine. After taking my Super Beats Heart Chews, I feel like I have more energy and I'm ready to take on the day. Super Beats Heart Chews are plant-based and so easy to add to your routine. No pills to swallow, no ingredients to mix or prepare. Double your potential with Super Beats Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews and 15% off your first order by going to GetSuperBeats.com and using promo code MAJORITY. That's GetSuperBeats.com, code MAJORITY. All right, Jason. Well, a lot has happened in the Middle East since we've talked about this. You know, we're not, you know, we're not Middle East experts, but... I can imagine um, you've got a lot of thoughts on this. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where to start, but I'll, I will plug that I did a, I'm doing a couple history sort of refreshers for people on this, uh, on the Lost Debate feed. I released one yesterday. And basically trying to, one thing I've noticed is people are cherry picking uh, history. Sometimes people are just wrong about history, but sometimes they're right about any one individual incident. And they're like, if I'm being honest, just sometimes people just, don't know a lot of the history and they're seeing memes and stuff and they're mentioning certain things out of context. And uh, I wanted to do a history that is my best guess at 
like after reading a lot about this, like what has happened pre establishment of the state of Israel through this first part I did through the mid nineties. And then I'm going to do the mid nineties through today, the next part. And I tried to go out of my way to share history that is even inconvenient for people who generally agree with me on the issue. Uh, and so people can go to the lost debate feed and check that out. And I would say, and going back over it, I, it is so depressing. And I think especially during our lifetime, you go to the, the mid nineties, this period of time between Oslo, uh, which was 93 under Clinton, and then that period of time going through the negotiations with Arafat and Rabin, um, both Arafat and Rabin facing like like more radical resistance within their own populations. In the case of Arafat with Hamas and then Rabin with um, the settler movement and Netanyahu, uh, and then Rabin getting assassinated, uh, and then suicide bombings. Um, increasing Netanyahu taking power and then getting close again in 2000 to peace, but it falling apart. It's just a depressing period of history. I mean, every part of it is like depressing, to be honest, but you're left wondering if we'll ever get back to anything close to peace again. Um, so it was a bummer, honestly, but people can go listen to it. I think it's awesome service that you, because I'm going to listen to it. You sent it to me. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Um, it is I, tedious. I'll warn you. <laughs> it's like I did the. I did a lot in. A, but it's valuable. Like, fa- I talk fast. Yeah, yeah. It's it's super but, valuable because it, because even you know when you think back on the, those periods, like you mentioned a lot of stuff there that, uh, if I had to independently reconstruct all that stuff, I don't think I get it in the right order, because yeah. it's it's moments in our lives we remember different flare-ups in the conflict we remember different changes we remember different israeli leadership and palestinian leadership but i i wouldn't be able to sit down with a paper and pen and put them all in the right order and and make and, yeah. and make it and because the right order is important because one piece leads to the next um which brings me to well, where can we I are explain now. why i yeah oh, please uh can i just explain one thing about that that i think is really important in going back over the history I'm not equating Hamas and Netanyahu, to be clear. Um, but I, I, I do want to talk about this period of time in which they both emerged. Uh, now, Hamas predated the 90s. Uh, not by much, but they predated the 90s. Now, there was this period of time when Arafat and Rabin were... And, and people have a lot to say about the two of them for different reasons. But they both put it on the line for peace in the early 90s. And, and credit to Clinton. Like The more you read about it, Bill Clinton was as motivated and energetic as any American president has ever been on this issue. Both of them were facing physical violence amongst their own population against like threats against them and uh, just extreme unrest at home. Uh, And, uh, and then, uh, you know, violence from one population to the other, you know, like there was a settler that committed a massacre against Muslims, and then there were multiple suicide bombings during this period of time. And what wound up happening, they were both on borrowed time. Rabin actually died. Arafat basically lost his legitimacy. And I mention this because Hamas, this is why it angers me when people talk about Hamas as somehow being some genuine actor with rational goals. Like Their goal has been to blow up the peace process literally and figuratively since the get-go. They don't believe in peace. Um, and again, I'm not comparing Hamas and Netanyahu, but simultaneously, Netanyahu arrives on the scene. Like he was around a little bit, but in the mid 90s, he slow walks Oslo. 
uh, expands settlements and engages in really reactionary politics where he finds these symbolic moments where that he knows are going to instigate suicide bombings. Like actually Rabin's wife blamed Netanyahu for his murder. Uh, and so mm-hmm. Netanyahu is a political arsonist when he himself, went to the, when he went know? to the Temple Mount or is that where he went? I can't remember. That was Sharon who did that. But, but, um, but Netanyahu did, um, he, 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 it, it doesn't make sense to our audience. Like if you're not following this, but what Netanyahu did a lot of stuff, especially the settlement stuff that I thought was gross. Um, and, and Rabin was, I think a lot of people criticize Rabin a lot, but he was good on settlement stuff. Like from pretty early on, um, he knew even in the, I think in the early eighties, um, he was talking about like they needed to pause settlement so they can get peace. But, um, Netanyahu would do things like, uh, and there's a really good frontline documentary called, um, Netanyahu at war, which goes through this awesome. Uh, and it goes through the, the Obama stuff too, where Obama fucking hated Netanyahu, uh, as did Clinton. Um, Clinton campaigned in Israel against Netanyahu, by the way, uh, which what? is I did not know kind that. of a breach of, yeah. Uh, and then Netanyahu returned the favor and campaigned against Obama here, endorsed Romney basically. But, um, Netanyahu would do things like there was this, um, tunnel, uh, at the, the sort of Temple Mount, uh, Al-Aqsa compound, right? Which is the sort of joint site where Muslims and, uh, Jews have, uh, historic, uh, biblical claims. And there was like this tunnel that like had been blocked and like, but, but then Netanyahu opened it and like, it's just like a totally incendiary act for reasons that if you don't really follow like all of the ins and outs of what the different religious claims are and totally unnecessary nobody like nobody really except for very extremist groups cared about this thing and what wound up happening was suicide bombings and unrest and all this kind of stuff in the middle of what what was supposed to be oslo implementation and when you watch this interview of netanyahu talking about it he's smirking and saying Oh, I just did it because the Arab merchants on the other side of the tunnel wanted it, and he's smirking because he knows it's just a made up. He, I, I forget who it was in the Clinton administration. I think it might have been Martin Index said that he's a world class. I see. He, I think he's a gold plated bullshitter, Netanyahu. He's kind of an evil, evil guy, like you know. And I, and I'm left looking at this and saying, this is what we're left with uh, after this like golden age of you know nobody. There are a lot of people a lot to say about Oslo and all this that were wrong, but Netanyahu is, I think. A disingenuous, uh, increasingly right-wing opportunist uh, who sold out his country, and then you have Hamas, who are full-blown terrorists, um, who are anti-Semitic and willing to go to the brink to stop peace. And again, they're not the same, but that's what we're left with, and it's really depressing. It's, I, it's so important to say that. Criticizing Netanyahu is not this. It's not being anti-Israel. Like I'm, I'm no. very pro-Israel. Uh, we both are, but that doesn't mean that you have to pretend that he's the right guy. <laughs> you know, it, it's like no, it's it, it's it's like we all gave Bush a chance after nine eleven, um, and at some point we went not the right guy. Uh, yeah, over fifty percent of, of Israelis don't think he's the right guy right now, and over eighty percent blame him for what happened. So, like Americans, like, look, no, I get accused of being too pro-Israeli more often than anything else, right? You don't have to be more pro-Israeli than Israelis people. Like, like Netanyahu <laughs> yeah. is Netanyahu. You can criticize Netanyahu. Like, take a deep breath. 
you're you're a liberal if you're listening to this podcast. Netanyahu is a right wing zealot. That doesn't mean you're against Israel. The guy should not be in power. Right. And most Israelis think that as soon as this thing stabilizes, which Lord knows when it will be, that he should step down. Like, I've had a lot of people, people close to me, who were uh, upset with me um, because I I have said things where I was on social media, skeptical of of Netanyahu, where I've also said things like, hey, I'm all for going in and, you know, getting rid of Hamas, and I'm all for regime change in Gaza, not having Hamas in charge, and having that mean destroying Hamas militarily. But I also am all for pausing to get as many people out of the way as possible before there's any sort of invasion, if there, if there even should be one. Like, that's, I, that's what I've said. And I've had, I've been called an anti-Semite. I've been, you know, which, <laughs> would, be, which would be news to my rabbi. And, and so it's, <laughs> but when you look at what's happened, the United States and other actors have prevailed upon Israel to actually do those things. I'm not saying they listen to me. Clearly, that's not what it is. But I'm saying those were not just the right things to have happened. Those were the right things for Israel, for Israel to pause and say, let's do this in a way that doesn't bring more of our enemies into this conflict, make this worse for us. Um, Now, I understand, obviously, the urgency with the hostages, but uh, that doesn't, that that is not license to move in a way that would be militarily and strategically reckless. That's not. It doesn't make sense to do that. Um, yeah. And now we're seeing yeah. some hostages released. We're even seeing, and this is not a defense of Hamas. This is just a statement of fact. We're even seeing some. And now I'm sure that this is depending on who your actual captor was, like who was holding you. I'm sure it's very different. But in some, at least one case, a hostage saying. That while they were treated horribly and it was hell when they were taken, that the actual people that were tending to them were treating them in a way that I can only describe as like within the Geneva Convention, which is honestly shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not ready to give out any, given what they did before no, that. It's of course like, not. To me, it's like, no, there's no PR. credit to but be given. That, I'm just saying, if that's the case, yeah. it can affect, it can, if, if you can determine. With with good intelligence, that's that's the treatment of the hostages, which I we don't know if it is, but if it is, then then that then the urgency question changes in terms of how yeah. reckless are you in your battle planning. Is my point? Yeah, and I, I want to talk about the domestic front in a second, but I do want to lay out a couple of things on the on the Netanyahu government front, which is. Um, one is he spent all this time dividing his own public, and I think there's a parallels to this in the United States, right? He was attacking the deep state. He was attacking Shin Bet. Uh, he uh, had a national security advisor who was so right-wing that the military uh, wouldn't let him do service, right? He had just a bunch of lunatic fringe characters in his government and was basically bulldozing the civil service. And then he was going after the judiciary for a number of reasons, one so he could escape his own corruption scandals, but more importantly, so that he could continue to expand settlements so that he could keep certain right-wing figures happy in his government. He also, and I, I saw these claims online, and I was like, this can't be true, that he propped up Hamas, right? Uh, you've probably seen these claims. And I'm like, this can't yeah, be I true. Yeah, I saw that. What is then that? I was, when I was reading Jerusalem Post, so Netanyahu explicitly stated that his, his goal was to divide the Palestinians. And uh, he uh, facilitated hundreds of millions of dollars from Qatar to Hamas. Uh, as a way to like basically 
I don't I don't want to exaggerate, but like keep Hamas kind of like happy and like dependent, I guess. And this was widely criticized at the time. This was a few years ago, uh, including by his opposition, saying this is really foolhardy. And actually, intelligence services have said since that a lot of that money has actually gone to terrorism. Obviously. Crazy. Like, so you get to this and you're like, this is a guy whose his his mission statement in his life is I'm you know, if 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 it's written on his grave, it's like I've kept Israel safe, right? He's expanded settlements and pushed uh, security resources to defending West Bank settlements instead of where they should have been, um, which is on the border. Like and there's any reading of this this attack is that Israel was understaffed on the Gaza border. Right, he's divided the public. He's gone after civil service and the military and the quote unquote deep state. This should be very familiar to people, etc. Um, and he he's done this all to cling to power for way too long. The guy's been uh, in and out of power since I was in middle school. Um, yeah, and so he's, I'm he's been around forever. That man. at the end of this, we have a better partner. Yeah, and he's gone to our White House and lectured Obama. If you remember that, he went to our Congress and lobbied against the president's Iran deal. He supported Romney in the election. Uh, he's just like, I, I again, I, I support Israel uh, as a state and its right to exist. Um, I think Hamas is evil. Um, I think that um, their Israel is encircled, has been historically encircled by enemies who are willing to wipe it off the map. But God, I hope they get better leadership because he's horrible. Um, I do think it's probably worth mentioning the insanity at home, Jason, before we go. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, sure. I do think, like, some of this stuff, like, this hospital bombing was really depressing. The fact that even major media organizations like New York Times and BBC got it wrong, but also just the amount of people who wanted to rush to say it was Israel and then either went quiet or failed to revise their thinking since. Right. Um, I, I saw people I who, like, I like and respect and usually agree with. Uh, reacting to this report immediately and calling it a uh, genocide by Israel. And, and I remember just thinking, I, I want to wait and learn more because as obviously the hospital bombing is horrible and tragic and makes you want to throw up no matter who's responsible. The added element right. as a Jew who supports Israel uh, is I just, I, I was just waiting thinking, I really, really hope that it turns out this is wrong. And yeah. it did turn out to be wrong. But it's so odd to me that so many people reported it just based on what Hamas said, like immediately. Yeah, as if they're a credible agency. It's also worth noting yeah. that the two biggest atrocities to happen so far in this conflict uh, have come from militant Islamist groups from the territories. Uh, and. Right. And let's pretend Israel did accidentally hit that hospital, right? Like, that's not genocide. That's horrible. Uh, and it, it, it could be reckless, depending on the circumstances. It didn't happen. But calling that genocide seems like you want to say Israel is committing right. genocide. Um, and again, like, as time has gone on, we talked about this last time. As time has gone on, I've grown, and a lot of people, I think Obama just put something out today. As time goes on, I'm getting less and less certain that this invasion is going to is either moral or smart uh and part of it it goes to whether netanyahu is a rational actor i i don't trust his judgment uh on this cuz i don't think he i don't trust him to separate his his personal political uh 
um, future from the future of the state of Israel anymore. Um, I also think he's just shown tremendously bad judgment about what is in the best interest of Israel, even if he went about it genuinely. Um, but I also see like this hospital bombing. It's like Israel didn't even bomb the hospital and they're getting blamed for it. So it's like the the everything is a win for Hamas, even them, their own. Now, that I, I think it wasn't Hamas that bombed it. It was some other militant organization, but it's like Hamas certainly tried to cover it up. Um, they win even when they do horrible things. It's it's really crazy, and I, and I don't profess to know exactly what Israel should do. They in, in the presence of hostages complicates things, and Hamas is smart to start letting them go because it it changes the calculus a little bit. Um, if they stream them out every so often, um, but I don't. Somebody needs to explain what the end game here is. Right, that's the scary part. I mean, when you got so many. It's such a tender box. I mean, to just use an overused term for the region. Yeah. But, um, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's the closest we're going to get to any sort of resolution on that topic. So, yeah. uh, with, with that, uh, one for us, man. You have how many days left in India? Uh, two more days I head back. Yeah. It's been great. I've been here for a month, if you count Sri Lanka. So, ready to go home. Amazing. Um, but and I've had a great trip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how's life back stateside? Uh, uh, it has been great for me. I, it sounds so trivial to talk about after everything we talked about, but that's what one for us is, uh, you know, the reason, so we weren't on air last week because you were in India and I was in Arizona playing baseball. Um, I oh, I saw the, that. Yeah. Uh, it looked amazing. I played, oh, it was so great. So me and three of my, my teammates from the, you know, the team I play on here, the Kansas city hustlers, we play in, uh, the national men's adult baseball league. So we went and we played, it's like a lot of former college players, some former pros, and then guys like me who just work really hard to remain the number nine hitter. Uh, we went down and we, so four of us played with this team from Oregon called the Silverton Red Sox. And uh, we played for a whole week on, you know, major league fields and against really good competition teams all over the country. Um, and uh, it was, dude, it was the best week of baseball I have played personally since like high school. Uh, I, it was just one of those weeks where I just, I was seeing the ball well and I just kept getting on base. I kept hitting and it just felt great. And, uh, it was just, it was a nice vacation. Shout out to Diana for, you know, we have two kids and she was like, yes, you go for wow. a week and play baseball and stay in an Airbnb with your friends. Uh, and it was just fantastic. Man, well, you better let her cool. go to tennis camp this year then that uh, I'm negotiating oh, sure. on her behalf here. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We we try and cover for each other. So. Um, yeah. But I'm excited for you to get back in the United States, and so I can hear all about how this project is going. All right, everybody. Remember to subscribe to Majority Fifty Four wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority Fifty Four and please leave a five star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.